Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. On Twitter. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And this is going to be a very, very busy episode as we had two major developments this week uh, concerning the Baltimore Orioles farm system and really minor league baseball as a whole. On Wednesday, MLB rolled out uh, the vast majority of the teams. I think it was officially 119 out of 120. Uh, on Wednesday, it was 120. It's confirmed on Thursday. Teams that will receive invites to be full-season affiliates um, in minor league baseball beginning next year. Now, this or- rumored reorganization has been in the works for a long time. There had been some speculation um, about where things would stand with the Orioles, and we now know how that's going to look. So we're going to talk about that. In addition, we're going to talk about the Rule 5 draft, which took place uh, on Thursday, and it resulted in the Orioles gaining two pitchers, but then also losing two pitchers, including reliever Zach Pop, um, someone who has not pitched since the beginning of the 2019 season because of Tommy John surgery, but someone that Bob, Nick, and I are all three very high on. Um, and in addition to that, we actually do have a little bit of BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com content to plug. Uh, Nick and I both have news stories this week that we're going to discuss uh, at the end of our show. But first, we're going to get into what's going on in minor league baseball. Um, really, since about this time last year, maybe even a little bit before that, we've known that starting in 2021, minor league baseball might look a lot different than it traditionally has in the past. Uh, Major League Baseball moving to a system where there are 120 affiliated clubs. Um, The New York Penn League, Appalachian League, and Pioneer League are no longer uh, home to affiliated teams. Meanwhile, the Northwest League, which uh, had been a short season league, will now move up to high A and serve, with the exception of the Toronto Blue Jays, uh, primarily West Coast teams. so six teams that had been in the Northwest League moved up. Um, but that's really not of concern to the Orioles, as their affiliation slate remained largely stable with the exception of the Frederick Keys, who are no longer an affiliated high-A club and will play in the MLB Draft League going forward. Um, so the organizational structure will now look like this from the top down. Norfolk at AAA, the Bowie Bay Sox at AA, 
the Aberdeen Ironbirds will move up from the short season A New York Penn League and become the Orioles' new Class A advanced affiliate. And the Delmarva Shorebirds will remain the Class A affiliate of the Orioles. So going forward, at the very least, now when one of us says that we expect the player to go to high A, we can say high A Aberdeen and then not have to say high A Frederick and then stop and correct ourselves. That's one advantage. Um, technically, what was announced on Wednesday was invitations. So in theory, there could be changes between uh, now and when the fuller picture for the 2021 minor league baseball season becomes clearer. But in the case of the Orioles, I think what we see right now in terms of the structure is what we're going to get. Uh, I don't expect any of those teams to reject invitations. I really don't expect any last-minute changes. So I'm going to start with Bob. What are your thoughts of how things played out? Well, yeah, like you said, it was a little bit predictable when it comes to the Orioles exclusively. I think I even predicted that Frederick would be out and Aberdeen would take its place in my uh, roster projection from a week ago. Um, it sucks for Frederick. I know that you know the stadium and the Keys are a big part of that town, and they actually had feel like they were building a pretty decent attendance there. But for me personally, it kind of is nice because Aberdeen, the Ironbird Stadium, is 10 minutes down the road. Um, now that they'll have more talented players playing there and for the full season instead of just from July on, that, that'll help me personally. But it, it's tough. But I think it's going to be a cleaner look. As long as they don't keep uh, shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, I think this is a nice, clean system where each team gets their four teams and then they can have two Dominican league teams and two short or rookie ball teams uh, where the Orioles have the GCL. Um, just glad we didn't have a bigger shakeup like some other teams did. Yeah, I, we can get into a lot of the positives out of this, but I think I want to take a moment and just, it's, it's annoying and it, it really does suck. Um, we all knew this was going to happen. Um, you know, for since this whole scenario started to play out, we, we knew this exactly what was going to happen and Frederick likely getting the axe once that first report came out a few months ago. But I guess my mind just kind of refused to accept it. And so Wednesday was kind of this shock that this really is happening. Um, you know, there, there's still going to be baseball in Frederick. Uh, the, the 120 teams still have to sign those contracts, like Zach said. So it's, it's still a fluid situation a little bit. But if I'm a major league team out on the East Coast, especially, and I need a new affiliate, I like Frederick's attendance numbers. Uh, I like the fan base there. I'm coming back to Frederick. Um, you know, you think about maybe expansion too. Something that uh, you would Nashville getting a team eventually? That's not the Orioles. Uh, is Montreal going to get another team again? And so you'd need eight more season affiliates. Uh, and so Frederick could be back in the mix soon again. Um, you know, I live up here in the mountains of Virginia, so the closest thing to me are the Salem Red Sox and the Lynchburg Hillcats, but I'd rather spend the extra 20 minutes driving to go to Frederick Keys games to watch future Orioles. Uh, they were a fantastic organization to me when I started writing uh, over at babybirdland.com. Um, they gave me access to the press box and interview players that they shouldn't have because I had no idea what I was doing, uh, but they did. They were great. Jeff Arnold was great. Got to meet him. Uh, a lot of other people in that organization that moved on, but, you know... I learned two things, I think, when I was thinking about this. One is that, you know, the employees that work there are amazing, hardworking, dedicated people. Uh, it gives a lot of opportunity to college kids for internships and everything. Um, and, and when it comes to the players, you know, 99% of Orioles fans have either never heard of or don't care about Chris Clare. 
Uh, I don't know if you guys remember him, <laughs> the early miners. I got to interview him and talk to him uh, outside before Frederick Key's game one time. And, you know, when you watch him, when you talk to him and you get to look him in the eye and he describes to you, like, what it would mean to his family and himself to put on an Orioles uniform and run out there on the Camden Yards and play second base to shortstop, I think you fully understand what this means to these, these minor leaguers. Uh, even though Major League Baseball doesn't really care if you're playing a doubleheader in 100-degree weather uh, and you've got five cents in your pocket and a stale peanut butter sandwich for dinner. like Major League Baseball just doesn't care about these guys, but those guys love the game more than anything else. Uh, I feel bad for the towns, the economic impact they're going to face. Um, you know, Maybe we can talk about you know if Frederick is a, a college ball town, is there still going to be that connection? I, I don't know, but... You know, it's it sucks for minor league baseball and a lot of these towns, these fans, these employees. You can create summer college ball leagues, but I mean, f- for what? I think, in my opinion, it's good for those college kids that are going to get scouted. But you're cutting minor league teams, you're cutting the draft. So where are those kids going to play after that? You're not giving them an opportunity. So I, I think that was just you know, it sucks for right now. Yeah, and and like both of you said, none of this really came as a big surprise. We had seen Frederick on that list last year, and you know you got the sense because there were a few teams that were on that list that made the cut on Wednesday. There were some teams that didn't make the cut that a year ago looked safe. Um, so in the end, it was not a huge surprise, but Frederick had been the longest running affiliate of the Orioles, um, and I know the 1989 figure was thrown out a lot yesterday, but the Frederick franchise had actually been in Hagerstown before that. And if you discount the co-op year of 81, sorry, I'm getting on a Hagerstown Suns uh, history nerd tangent here. But if you take out the co-op year of 1981, where the Orioles supplied players and coaches, uh, Hagerstown became an exclusive affiliate of the Orioles in 1982. That franchise later moved to Frederick. So in reality, the link between the Frederick franchise and the Orioles runs almost 40 full years. So a lot of tradition goes out the window here. I will say that I think overall the Orioles did pretty well in terms of their reorganization because now they're going to have their high eight about a half hour away in Aberdeen. Um, They keep Delmarva, which I should note, did a renovation recently to both fan amenities and player facilities, and everyone that I've spoken to about how those renovations played out um, that's involved in these sort of things has spoken highly of them. So it was not a surprise to me that Delmarva made it. Bowie, I, I got the sense that Bowie would probably be okay when the Orioles put their alternate site there. That that was kind of telling to me. And then Norfolk, uh, I think as far as the AAA fit geographically, you can get to Baltimore. That's as good as you can do. Um, you're able to get flights uh, between two cities pretty quickly, which is a good thing. So overall, I think the Orioles do well, but it is still a little disappointing to see Frederick go. Now, I guess as a summer collegiate market, Frederick will still get major league talent, and some of that might be players that are drafted by the Orioles. So you could still have a little bit of connection here and there, but they're not going to get you know, the next Adley Rutzman to come through there or the next Manny Machado to come through there, and that's where it's tough. Yeah, it you think the college ball league too, like how many of those top, top kids are going to perform in that league because it's right before the draft. So, you know, are they going to be afraid that they're going to get hurt? Um, 
you know, and maybe sit out. Uh, and yeah, you don't have that connection. So you can look forward to, I know I grew up in a minor league town right outside Norfolk. So I understand what it means to the fans. And a lot of those fans that go to those games, like aren't fans of the Orioles. You know, when I was growing up, the Tides were a Mets affiliate. I was not a Mets fan. I, I hated the Mets, but uh, I love the Tides. Uh, and so I imagine there's a lot of people in Frederick that feel that same way. And they're going to go to those games regardless because it's baseball. Um, you know, here where I live in Harrisonburg, Virginia, we have two college or we have one college summer ball league. We have two summer leagues, but one is a, specifically a college summer ball league. And fans come out to those games. Uh, a lot of fans do, and they love those teams. But it's not the same where you can say, all right, Adley Rutschman is, is down there in Aberdeen. Next year, he's coming to Frederick. You know, you, know, you get that anticipation of these guys coming up. Um, and then, you know... Adley Rushman's coming up this year, and then next year I'm going to turn on Masson and get to watch him uh, on the Orioles. You know, that was really cool for me as a kid. I know following a minor league team in the Tides, being able to watch, you know, WGN or whatever, the Cubs or, or Braves games on TV. We got all those games on. And I get to watch a guy at Harvard Park, and then two weeks later he's playing for the Mets. And I thought that was so cool as a kid and getting me excited about baseball. Um, I don't know if you're still going to have that in a lot of these towns, though. But luckily for Baltimore, though, I guess to get away from the negative, all the affiliates are really close. And, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, Orioles did a really good job though. They got four really good franchises, I think. Yeah. And I, I don't mean to blow past the negative. I think I have a defense mechanism where I always have to find the silver lining of things. Uh, but yeah, it sucks for the people in Frederick and for the people that, you know, run the team. I mean, hopefully the, I think they will bounce back. I think there will be an expansion uh, before too long in major league baseball. I feel like we're due for that. And hopefully they, they latch on somewhere. Cause Live baseball is just fun to watch, even if it's not as an affiliate with your favorite team. So we'll see what happens. Now, we wanted to look at this kind of from the fans' perspective a little bit, but also kind of take this discussion and shift it over to the player development side. You are still going to have short-season teams because you're still going to have the Gulf Coast League teams and you're still going to have the Dominican Summer League. In fact, I believe the plan for the Orioles is going to be two Gulf Coast Leagues. You're just not going to see players move from Florida to Aberdeen, uh, the way we have in the past. And the draft is moving to July this coming year. I suspect that's probably going to be the way it is going forward. Um, so players taken out of the draft are actually going to have very little time, if any, to play in competitive games um, before the season that they're drafted in ends. Um, so I'm going to start with you, Nick. Do you think that the ultimate end result of this um, – is going to be that the player development process is a lot more efficient, by which I mean players might not linger in the farm system for five, six years the way they do now. Yeah, I mean, I, I jotted a lot of things down thinking about this, kind of the positives in all of this. Um, you know, when you talk about player development, I think this is a good thing. Um, you know, it's are cutting all these teams going to make the major league product worse? No. In fact, I think they're probably going to make the major league product better uh, in the long run, just because you're going to have fewer minor league teams, fewer opportunity, fewer opportunities as far as roster spots go. So if you latch on with an organization, you've got to get the ball rolling immediately or you're going to lose your job and you're going to be out of the game. Um, you know, maybe you know, with these smaller, smaller leagues, you're going to have like, that increased competition, less travel, you know, higher quality facilities that these guys are going to be able to play in. Um, you're going to get more one-on-one -on -one or at least better instruction. Teams are going to be able to maybe create more individualized plans for guys because you don't have 
10 guys on that roster who are going to phase out of minor league baseball in a year or two. Uh, so you can spend a lot more time. We saw that at the alternate site with guys like Dean Kramer and Keegan Aiken and Ryan Mountcastle and what they did with the Orioles. Um, so I think you saw a lot of positives there. Um, you know, having multiple GCL teams, I think is a pretty cool idea. Um, it, you can build, hopefully, with all this extra money, you know, maybe now that you're going to have 60, 70 GCL guys, you can build like a housing complex down there for these kids. Think about like the younger international kids that come up from the Dominican Summer League. A lot of these guys are, are really poor. Uh, they come from not a lot of money. And so if you can give them safe housing down in Sarasota and maybe a stipend and they can focus on baseball. Uh, even the college kids that come out, maybe some of them are married with kids. Um, they have safe housing now. They don't have to worry about all of that. They don't have to worry about driving Uber all night after playing a game. Uh, they can just go out and play baseball. Um, so I think as far as development is concerned, you are going to see a lot of improvement. So. Yeah, completely agree with Nick. And that's a great point about the GCL and building a complex where the players can stay uh, during their training. That's a really good point. But yeah, I do think it's going to help development. I mean, you will have less Cinderella stories like a Mike Yastrzemski who just kind of sticks around as organizational filler and then finally breaks out when he's 27, 28. I don't think that's going to happen as much, unfortunately, unless it happens in independent ball or something like that. But overall, you're going to have more competition in games. Every every player, even as a fan, it's going to help. Like every player pretty much for the most part is going to at least have a potential future in Major League Baseball and less organizational filler it's exciting in a development and fan way it sucks for the people who just want to play some semi or professional baseball for a few years before they have to figure out what they do with their lives yeah so there's you know with the draft it's looking like it's going to get shortened to 20 rounds um i know that that sounds like it's the plan for this coming year and it probably will be something along those lines going forward um, once we probably get, you know, hopefully by sometime next month or maybe shortly thereafter, we'll start having a better sense of what the minor league season in 2021 could look like in terms of scheduling, how the leagues are actually going to be built. Um, but for now, we know, um, just to recap, Norfolk remains at AAA, Bowie remains AA, Aberdeen takes the place of Frederick at high A, Delmarva remains at low A, and Frederick will keep baseball, but will no longer be affiliated uh, professional baseball. Instead, it will be a member of the MLB Draft League. Um, as I said, though, early on, there is still kind of a fluid situation across the board, so more things could change, but we'll continue to follow this as the offseason goes on. Um, now we're going to get into what uh, we have been waiting for for months, and that's the Rule 5 draft, which... Depending on how eventful you thought things might be coming into the draft, it probably turned out to be a little bit more so, because the Orioles did take two players, but they also lost two players. I'm going to start off with those that they lost. Um, one of them was Gray Fenter, and I did a lot of Rule 5 coverage this year for BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com, more so than usual. I knew Fenter was Rule 5 eligible. But the thought that he would get taken in the Major League phase, especially by a team like the Cubs that theoretically could contend next year, uh, was really a surprise to me. So I want to get Nick and Bob's thoughts on that. And then Zach Pop, who was, for us, a clear top 30 prospect. We're working on that list uh, now, revising it for 2021. 
he probably would have stayed in there had he not been chosen today. The Arizona Diamondbacks selected Pop um, in the Major League phase of the Rule 5 draft, then shortly thereafter traded him to the Miami Marlins for a player to be named later. Now, Pop will still have to stick with the Marlins as if he's a Rule 5 pick, even though they acquired him via trade. But the feeling that the Marlins went out and traded for Pop means that they must have a sense that he's going to stick in their bullpen. So, Nick, I'm going to start with you. What were your thoughts on, first, the loss of Pop? Uh, I think that was not shocking, but sort of shocking. I, I don't... I don't know if the Orioles, you know, know something that we all don't, and so maybe they felt okay if if he gets selected, that's fine. Um, or did the Orioles think, you know, when you look at the number of players who are, get selected in the Rule Five Draft is pretty low, the number of guys who actually stick with that new team is even lower. So you know, let's take the gamble. He hasn't pitched in over a year. Uh, he's been recovering from Tommy John. You know, let's let's go ahead and just un- leave him unprotected and roll the dice there because the odds are in our favor. Um, and if so, if that's the case, and the Orioles lost out on a really good pitcher, then you know it's. It, I'm not going to say it hurts a whole lot because this organization is so deep now. Losing a guy like Zach Pop isn't going to you know destroy the organization, uh, but it does kind of suck to have such a young team and uh, to lose a pitcher like Pop and his potential. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think with if we have a shorter season in 2021, then I think that increases the odds that we don't see Zach Pop come back. Uh, other than that, but I don't know. It's I'm not shocked, but I am a little shocked. I have to say. Yeah, I I think this is like the first mistake Elias has made. Unless, like Nick said, there is something that we just don't know. But as far as everything on paper, I feel like he was a guy I thought they would definitely put on the 40-man roster to protect him. They didn't, which seemed likely that he would be picked. And look, it's he's the 19th. He was, before he got picked, the 19th person on my revised top 30, which I will definitely have to change now. So it's not the end of the world, but it's just frustrating because I went on Locked On Orioles and talked about how by the end of 2021 he could be the Orioles' closer this coming year. And if he does that for the Marlins, that's going to sting you know, sting a little bit. But look, we do have a lot of guys that are starting pitching prospects for now, but who could ultimately transition into the bullpen. And we do have depth there. So it's not going to kill us, which is the good and the bad about having an improved farm system is you can't protect everybody. And unfortunately, you're going to lose some good ones over the long haul. But that's a good thing because that just means you have that many more, that much more depth in that uh, area. Yeah, I wrote back in September that I thought that if Pop had not gotten hurt early in the 2019 season like he did, that of the prospects that came over in the Machado trade uh, from the Dodgers, so him, Eusneel Diaz, Dean Kramer, and Ryland Bannon, I think if Pop had been healthy, he would have actually beaten the other three of the majors. And I think he, that's even the case if Eusneel Diaz is healthy. But you're talking about a guy that when he was on the mound was throwing consistently mid to upper 90s, sometimes touching 100. The slider was always drawing rave reviews. The only thing I kept coming back to when the Orioles didn't protect him was either they're taking a very huge risk, which I think that they did, or they know something we don't know about his rehab um, or about what his fastball velocity could look like going forward. 
but the fact that the Marlins went out and traded for him right afterwards tells me that they've had him on their radar for a while, and he's going to get the opportunity to stick there. Now, I'll start with Bob on this, because this has been on my mind, and Nick alluded to it also. If we have a shortened season um, in 2021, and or expanded rosters, at least for the start of the season, do you think that, that means that Pop is absolutely gone, that the Marlins have got him and they're going to keep him for the rest of the year and going forward? Yeah, I do. Um, I think he's a guy that if he's going to come back to us, it's going to be early on because if he can show that he's healthy enough, I think the town is there, that he'll he'll stick in the bullpen. He's not going to embarrass himself to the point where, you know, they're going to, unless they're competitive again, which I don't think they're going to be like, uh, a team that makes the playoffs and beats a team in the playoffs again next year, but we'll see. But I think he might come back if they see him in spring training and he's just not the guy that they thought he was or, you know, his recovery wasn't going as good, his velocity's down, then he might come back. But if the season is delayed again, that just buys him more time to recover and get back. So I think there's a good chance that he, he's not coming back. Uh, Gray Fenther, on the other hand, I think we'll get him back. <laughs> Yeah, and with Pop, too, I mean, there's so many ways around this. You know he's recovering from Tommy John, so I, I do know. I, we talked about this before, how I think Major League Baseball did say that they're monitoring these Rule 5 guys a little bit more closely, so teams just can't say, oh, he's got a cough, like injury list. Uh, but still, he's coming off Tommy John, hasn't pitched in a while. It's going to be really easy for the Marlins to say, all right, just go get us one out. You know, Bring him in with two outs in an inning so you don't have to face three batters. Just get one out. All right, that's your game. You can sit on the roster. We'll do that once a week, uh, and then we'll shut you down for a few weeks. I'll put you on the I.O. So I, I think Pop's good is gone. But, yeah, Fenter, on the other hand, though, it, I think he could probably be back. Although I was reading some Cubs stuff, and uh, Cubs fans already really like him, kind of for the same reasons that we fell in love with him last year, the, the fastball velocity and curveball, and throw him in the bullpen and see if he sticks there. I think that's what a lot of Cubs fans are excited about. And apparently, I saw a quote from him, another writer, that after he got picked, apparently a lot of his family are St. Louis Cardinals fans, and Gray Finter said they can just get over it uh, about him joining the Cubs. So I think Cubs fans are going to want to keep him around. Yeah, I, Fenter was surprising to me. Like I said, he was not really on my radar as a guy that could get taken in the Rule 5 drafting. He was certainly not on my radar as far as 40-man roster additions went because it seemed like leading up to when the Orioles made that decision in late November it was Alex Wells or Zach Pop maybe somehow they find room for both but it's going to come down to those two guys for that last spot they ultimately went with Wells and look I think Alexander Wells is a very good pitching prospect and I actually think for 2021 he is the safer choice um, but there's going to be you know scrutiny for a while if the Orioles do lose Pop with Fenter, though, I really was surprised to see him taken. But it's not because I don't think he's a good prospect. I actually do. I just thought that the fact he has not pitched above low A, he was Rule 5 eligible last year and was not chosen, and that would have seemed like the time to have taken him. And the fact that as the Orioles have added depth and kind of built this farm system up more um, since the start of 2020, you've been hearing Fenter's name less. And it's not so much that I think he's a worse prospect than he was before, it's just that his spot on the depth chart has moved down a little bit. I've thought all, I had thought coming into 2021 
that Fenter could be a guy that goes to high A or double A, gets moved to the bullpen, and gets, becomes a very quick riser. I would not have expected, though, that a team was going to look at him right now and think, let's put him in the bullpen from day one and see if he sticks. Yeah, I mean, he was eligible to get picked last year in the Rule 5, and no one took him. Uh, I would have thought Cody Sedlock even would be above him as far as getting picked just because he did show success out of the bullpen in double A in 2019. Like you said, he's a, he's a talented arm, but he's going to be 25 years old next year and hasn't pitched above low A ball. So that's that's just he could he could make it, but it would be jumping right into the deep end of the pool and learning to swim immediately, which I just I, I don't see it happening. But I think it could be good for him, good for the Orioles if he goes there, learns some things, you know, sees where he's at, maybe has a little bit of success and comes back and uses that moving forward. And then he can go right to double-A uh, Bowie or triple-A Norfolk and go from there. Yeah, I mean, he'll go to spring training with the Cubs, the major league team. So, And I know the Cubs are kind of possibly trading away everybody and starting from scratch again. But, I mean, it's still Chicago Cubs. So, I mean, yeah, maybe it does learn something and comes back. Uh, if not, you know, I think the Orioles, just today alone, I mean, they added one, two, three, four, they added, what, five new pitchers today in the Rule 5 draft between the major and minor league phases. Uh, and like you said, he, his position in the organization has dropped so much. And that's not a knock on him. That's just a knock on how good this organization is. So, it's. I wish them both the best of luck. If they come back, great. If not. I hope they find success. Yeah, and best of luck to both of them. I think that they're both talented arms, uh, regardless of whether they're able to pitch uh, for the Orioles again or that they stick with their new teams. Best of luck to them, and I know that I'll be following them once spring training rolls around to see how they perform. Uh, Now we're going to focus on the guys that the Orioles did take. The first one with the fifth overall pick in the Rule 5 draft, they took Max Soroller a starting pitcher out of the Cincinnati Reds farm system who last pitched at High A Daytona in 2019. Um, he is the nephew of former Orioles pitcher and Masson commentator Ben McDonald. Um, and from, from scouting reports, sounds like he's a guy with a pretty well-rounded pitch repertoire, even if his fastball velocity does not jump out at you. Uh, the Orioles also took another player in the second round in the Major League phase of the Rule 5 draft, going with the big right-hander Tyler Wells out of the Minnesota Twins system. Uh, six foot eight. Wells has not pitched since 2018 because he had Tommy John, uh, I believe it was early in 2019. A lot of things that I read today said that had there been a 2020 season, it would have been a largely lost one for Wells because of his rehab. But uh, Wells last pitched in 2019, putting up, or 2018, excuse me, putting up pretty solid numbers between high A Fort Myers and double A Chattanooga. Both have experience as starters in the minor leagues. Um, I don't know what the Orioles envision for them in the near term, but I'm going to start with you, Nick. What were your thoughts on these pickups? Uh, I mean, I like what I've seen so far. I spent all afternoon, hope none of my coworkers are listening, uh, I spent all afternoon watching videos of these two guys plus the three guys that the Orioles took in the minor league phase. There were some really exciting guys, uh, that bunch too. But uh, with Soroller, you know, like you said, he's got that Ben McDonald uh, family ties, so that is pretty awesome to see. Um, yeah, doesn't walk a lot of guys, strikes out a high number of guys, the 26.5% strikeout rate in 2019. Uh, just reading his draft profile when he came out of college, he's out of southeastern Louisiana. Um, 
They described him as a fastball that can reach 95 miles an hour, an 11-5 curveball, and a changeup, a possible back-of-the-rotation type piece. Uh, we, I tweeted out a lot of these videos uh, that I took today of these guys, um, going back watching MILB TV highlights of them. Uh, I love the curveball that he had. That seemed like a really good pitch. Uh, fastball is pretty decent, a little movement on that. Uh, didn't see a whole lot of the changeup, except the one guy that took him deep over the fence uh, when he left it over the middle of the plate. But... I read Eric Loggenhagen over at Fangraphs is kind of mixed on him. I think the reports from Loggenhagen don't match the excitement that Mike Elias and the Orioles seem to have of him. Loggenhagen viewed him as kind of like a fringy 40-man guy, uh, noted that he wasn't at the Reds' alternate site or the Instructional League, uh, so he hasn't pitched in a while. But, uh, you know, the Orioles are high on him. I, I trust Mike Elias on those scouting guys. Um Tyler Wells, yeah, like you said, hadn't pitched since 2018. But, again, same thing, a lot of strikeouts. Uh, not too, too many walks, and 6'8 guy. 6'8 guy with a, a big curveball, apparently. So, I mean, that's Michael Ash has been stockpiling these 6'6 six, six and up uh, pitchers recently. So that's someone who I'm excited to see. I think he has a much higher hill to climb as far as making the roster, but 6'8, the guy can – he's got the opportunity. Yeah, Michael Elias has a type. Tall, <laughs> dark, and good spin rate. But um... – <laughs> I, I did see a quote. I think uh, I can't remember who said it. It was the farm director, I think. It was saw it on Steve Mieski's uh, blog about how they the Orioles felt confident in scouting through video and their ability to scout through video. Uh, I thought that was interesting. Maybe they think they have a leg up on other teams that think they need uh, in person scouts, <laughs> which I know Elias is not the biggest fan of scouts. It seems like from what, how they cut the department down, but. Um, when it comes to Ben McDonald's nephew, it's just funny to me how we lost a guy who wasn't at the alternate camp. Fenter, he might have been at the fall instructional roster. I can't remember, but he never pitched above A ball. And that's pretty much exactly what uh, Skiller is. And then we also took a guy who missed the season with Tommy John, hasn't pitched since. Sounds a little bit like Zach Pop, the starting pitching version. So just kind of funny. the the way that that shattered each other um i think i i like the videos that you posted on on twitter nick uh the the breaking balls are they look really good so i think there's potential here or we could just have another brandon bailey and michael uh i forget his last name from last year (laughs) rucker michael rucker yeah yeah that's one thing that that always comes into play with rule five picks they're not a guarantee to stick around and the orioles could hold on to both of these guys they could uh, keep one, send the other back, or they might send both back. I think if the Orioles had known what was coming with the pandemic, they would have held on to Rucker and Bailey last year, um, at least held on to them a little bit longer than they did. But, you know, we do know that with 162-game season, the Orioles didn't see either one of those guys sticking around. And that could be the case this year. But I do want to uh, bring up some quotes here that have been making the rounds with various Orioles uh, beat writers from Director of Pro Scouting Mike Snyder. Uh, I'm reading this here from uh, Rock Cavado at Masson. Uh, and this is on Soroller. Uh, and this is what Snyder had to say. For Soroller, we were attracted to the four-pitch mix. It's a good fastball, good traits, and flashes the power. He leverages the curveball downhill, throws the slider for strikes, um, and for chases, and he can get a lot of awkward swings on a plus splitter, which Snyder noted that, and I had not seen that uh, picked up in a lot of other places. But to finish his quote out, 
Um, so he brings a lot to the table. Looking at that, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, Bob, it seems like Pitt's ability, basically the ability to throw four types of pits as well, factored into this, and not so much as velocity. Because Eric Longenhagen uh, noted in his report that he generally sits about 91 to 94. Yeah, I mean, it definitely doesn't hurt if you have four pitches that are workable and you can throw them for strikes like that slider that he noted. Um, it's interesting. Maybe he worked on a splitter in the alternate. Oh, I guess he wasn't at the alternate camp. Maybe they figured out that he was working on something uh, and he's improved since, you know, the last time he pitched in professional ball in 2019. I'm not sure since no one else noted that plus splitter. But, yeah, it's interesting. I guess we'll find out pretty quickly uh, if he lives up to the building when spring training rolls around. Yeah, it's pretty similar to, I think, how they describe it with Brandon Bailey. It, it seemed like when you they talked about Bailey, it was he had what, four or five pitches, I think, but they were all like average pitches, and he was seemed like a, an average guy, which it sounds bad, but he didn't have anything that stood out, but he didn't have anything that was going to really hold him back either. Uh, and it seems like with Sorolla and Wells, that's the same idea, except these guys are a lot taller, because I know Bailey was on the shorter end, but these are two taller guys, so they can do more on the mound. Um, and again, yeah, we've seen that Michael Elias has his new type uh, that he's going for in the organization. So I, I don't know. I think we'll, we'll see what happens. Hopefully there's a spring training, um, even if it gets pushed back and, and we can see these guys there, or they can at least get out to uh, Sarasota and maybe with closed workouts, we can still get some reports and some videos of what these guys look like. But it's options, and that's what the Orioles need right now, just options. Yeah, and I'm going to pull up some of Soroller's numbers here. Um, 239 innings pitched since he was drafted by the Reds um, in the fifth round of the 2017 draft. He's got a career 407 ERA, 239 innings pitched, with uh, 252 strikeouts. And 75 walks, so certainly good strikeout-to-walk numbers there. Uh, he is pitched primarily the starter, but do either one of you see him as a contender for that fifth rotation spot, or do you think uh, long to mid-relief is a more realistic possibility for him? Uh, I think it's bullpen. Because I mean, just based on what Michael is saying, you've got John Means, Dean Kramer, Keegan Aiken. Alex Cobb, always forget about him when I think about the rotation. You got four guys right there. So actually the Orioles only have like one real opening. Uh, and you know they're going to sign at least one, if not two, maybe even three. Who knows? Uh, these, you know, the Tommy Malone type pitchers again. So there's, he's, he's going to be in the mix, I'm sure. But I think these guys, they're going to try to stash him away in the bullpen. And when you got, you know... Isaac Matson doesn't have to make the active roster. He can go down to AAA, so that's one spot there. You know, does Cesar Valdez come out and make the active roster again, or was 2020 just a, a really fun year for him? I don't know, but there could be a lot of spots open in that bullpen. Yeah, I completely agree with Nick. I think you know they could blow him away in spring training, maybe earn a look as a fifth starter, especially if there's an injury or two. You know, Alex Cobb isn't exactly the most durable guy in the world, so wouldn't rule it out completely but i think they might even go to like a bruce zimmerman uh, alex wells zach lowther that type of guy at a look in the starting rotation first especially wells coming off the injury might want to just limit him to an inning or two at a time making that jump to the major league so yeah i think mostly uh Sioler could be long relief and i think wells might be like a short relief uh in blowouts type of guy at least in the beginning of the year yeah and with Wells, he hasn't pitched since 2018. Um, 
he had been a starter, which is a bit of a difference from Pop. And I'm going to quote again from uh, Matt Snyder talking about um, Wells, and this is from Rockabato again. For him, he missed the... Oh, hold on, I'm going to actually go with the quote above that. Tyler Wells is an interesting case. There are some similarities to Soroller in that we're drawn to the full assortment of weapons he has in his bag, both with lefties and with righties. He's a 6'8 monster. He's a starter who walks all four quadrants of the zone with the fastball. He features two interesting breaking balls and a plus changeup. He executes them well and throws them for strikes. I don't know about either one of you, but that sounds to me like the type of pitcher that if you're going to handle him in the short run, um, you're going to start him out knowing he's coming off the injury as a one-inning guy max. And then maybe you look to stretch him out as the year goes on. And if you really are a big believer in his ability to throw those pitches and you know maybe even work his way through a lineup uh, once, uh, you could see him in a long relief role or a starter. The way I kind of picture it is if Wells sticks on the roster all year and is able to prove himself as a guy who could be part of the solution for the Orioles for at least the next year or two beyond that, maybe we see the Orioles handle him the way Dylan Bundy was handled in 2016, where he was in the bullpen and kind of eased into a higher workload as that season went along. Yeah, I think I saw a few things too from like Minnesota Twins, you know, blogs and websites that Wells was a guy I think they were anticipating making the major leagues at some point in 2020. So he's, I think he's there, he's ready. Um, and yeah, if you can work your way back and at a six eight guy out of the bullpen, you bring him in next to you. I'm imagining like a, uh, uh, I was thinking of Richard Blyer for some reason. I don't know, he's gone. Uh, but you bring in, you know, a guy like a, a uh, Dylan Tate, and then you mix that in with a six eight guy out, or Tyler Wells right behind him. Uh, it could get interesting. There could be some interesting matchups too that Brandon Hyde could pull off as the season goes along. Yeah, I think they could use this year as like a prove it, get healthy, prove that you're healthy, can get through a season rebounding, and then maybe stretch him back out in 2022, start him at Norfolk, or you know just give him a chance to win that job out of spring training the following year. But that's a long way to go before we get there. So. Just see if he's healthy, see if he's, you know, rebounded and back to his old self and see what we got. Yeah, that's a good point, Bob. And, you know, that is a long ways off, but, you know, you're not committing to keeping Wells in the major leagues forever. So if he could stick on the roster this year, and the same goes for uh, Soroller. If they can stick on the roster all year and the Orioles don't feel that they're quite ready yet, but that they still see some value in them, they could send them down to the minor leagues in 2022 and have them work this out now. This question was posed in the message board earlier to, on the BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com message board. One so much of questions, it was just sort of a, someone pointing out that the Orioles did not protect Zach Pop as he was coming off of Tommy John surgery, but yet drafted Wells um, as he's recovering from Tommy John surgery. So clearly the Orioles not 100% um, risk-averse when it comes to bringing pitchers back off of an elbow injury. But what do you think could have been the difference between Wells and Pop? Was it just that maybe they saw something in Wells they didn't see in Pop? Or was it just they couldn't protect Pop, they lost him, they liked Wells, they had the opportunity to take him, and they grabbed him? Could be. That could we And also, you know, like we mentioned, maybe there's something in the medicals that we don't know about, and the Orioles felt comfortable letting Pop go. But... Also, he's really just like a fastball slider guy, and we all love him and think he's a great pitching prospect. 
But, I mean, the Orioles have a lot of these fastball slider type guys. Um, it's not very often you can find a 6'8 guy with five, four or five pitches. So I think there's a little bit of difference there between these two guys. Uh, but, I mean, that is a good point, though. But We'll see what happens with them. But... Yeah, I hate to speculate on someone and assume that they're not recovering the way that they should be. But it kind of leads me to think a little bit that way when you you are willing to lose one of those type of guys but pick up another one maybe it says something I'm not sure but just going off of what we know for sure yeah I think it's just that yeah Zach Pop he could be a really nice reliever but they're also very uh not um consistent let's say relievers in general and it's a little bit easier to find a guy like that than it is to find a, like Nick said, a six-eight guy with a bunch of good pitches who could potentially one day be a starting pitcher for your contending team. So, yeah, I think the upside might be a little bit higher for Wells, but I think the floor for me is a little bit, was a little bit higher for Pop. Yeah, that's kind of where I, I thought, Bob, that you know I think I, I'm a little bit more confident in Pop um, as a quality major league arm than I am Wells, but I could see where the Orioles look at Wells and they at least see a reliever who could go multiple innings and be effective against batters on both sides of the plate, which is more important now than it's ever been in the era of the three-batter minimum. Um, So even if Wells ends up in the bullpen for his whole career, there is some potential there. Uh, We are going to talk about the minor league phase, pickups of the Rule 5 draft, but before we get into that, I just want to ask you both this, because there had been speculation out there that the Orioles would go uh, down this path. Were either one of you surprised that they didn't take an infielder in the major league phase of the Rule 5 draft? I thought that was who they were going to go with. Uh, just because it was tough, but I think my my gut just said infielder, which was obviously wrong. But I just felt like you could find so many pitchers if you want, you know, those minor league signings for like relief arms, the Tommy Malone type starters. There's so many of those guys. I felt like you could sign those guys for super cheap. Uh, but if you wanted a reliever, uh, not a reliever, a middle infielder, you know, we talked about Freddie Galvis is probably the top option for the Orioles. And is he going to cost, is that contract going to be low enough for them? Uh, or is he going to ask too much? There really are no options on free agency there. So I thought maybe they'd take a little risk with an infielder, but didn't happen. Personally, I, I wasn't that surprised. I know it was an option. I know that was the other option. It was either going to be pitcher or infielder but I just feel like I just didn't see anyone that was on the level of Richie Martin at least as far as like prospect standing and all that and that didn't exactly work out like gangbusters and I don't think they really need another guy who's just going to be like a fringe utility upside play and I think there's enough guys that have solid defensive reputations on free agency that they can make their their move there but to be honest, I was on the record as saying they weren't going to make a pick at all. So, what do I know? Well, a lot of teams did pass today, so it was you know it was odd because it was a busy Rule Five draft. But then you look at the results, especially in the middle of the draft, it seems like it's pass, pass, pass. And I, I think it was actually the San Diego Padres uh, went into the draft with a full forty-man roster, so they couldn't even make a pick. Uh, but it was it was definitely a different year for the Rule Five draft, and one where the Orioles. Picked up a little bit of talent in the minor league phase, and Nick's going to tell us a little bit more about it because he's been posting <laughs> videos to our Twitter page, at BSL on the birds, of some of these players, but I'm going to start with one in particular, Nick, and that's uh, Ignacio Feliz, 
which looks like it could be a good value pick for the Orioles. Yeah, and to go back real quick, though, the Major League phase, there's 15 right-handed pitchers taken, one shortstop and two outfielders. So teams teams clearly went after the same type of guys. But yeah, Ignacio Feliz was actually the third round pick of the minor league phase of the Rule 5 draft, but he's one of my favorites here. Um, I was familiar with the name, writing about the Padres earlier a couple years ago, but 21-year-old international signer for the Padres, former shortstop, so we got Michael Givens 2.0 coming up through the system. Um, We reference Eric Loggenhagen a lot. He does great work. He's been really high on him for about two, three years now. Uh, Good curveball. He gives him like a 60 future value grade for that curveball. There's a video up on our Twitter account, like Zach mentioned. Uh, He's really athletic. The fastball is 90-92, but from from what I've read that a lot of people thought that he would probably project more power and get even more athletic up on the mound, but that power hasn't come yet. Uh, He can be a little wild at times, but I think for a third-round minor league phase pick, it's a fantastic pickup, and, and these guys don't have the same roster requirements. So once you picked up, like you're you're with the Orioles organization, so I think this is a guy they can put in the lower minors, probably Delmarva. I have to like picture the levels in my head now. Uh, probably Delmarva, and that's a really good bullpen depth piece down in the minor leagues, and see what happens. Yeah, I was really surprised that we were able to get him so far down the line in this Rule Five draft. Um, very intriguing arm, if converted shortstop a la Michael Givens, so maybe he can eventually be a high 90s guy and get us a nice return and trade in seven years or something. But, uh, yeah, that's going to be very good. I thought they did a good job with the minor league portion, and he was definitely number one on my uh, intriguing list as well. Yeah, a little bit of background on Feliz. He just turned 21, which is actually pretty young for a Rule 5 pick. Um as a pitcher, he has topped out with Tri-City of the Northwest League um, in 2019. That was when it was a short-season A league still. So, as Nick said, looks like he's going to go to Delmarva. Uh, the walks were a little high there in 57 to third innings. He walked 27 batters, but he also struck out 55. So there's definitely room for potential there. The one name that jumped out at me, just because if you want to look at depth, I never feel like the player like this, and that's... Um, is bad to pick up, and that's uh, Chris Hudgens, who came out of the Royals organization. Has time at catcher, first base, and third base. Uh, last played at Low A Lexington in 2019, and it's got a little bit of power. So that was kind of an intriguing pick to me. Um, I could see him maybe as a guy that you put behind Adley Rutzman and Bowie next year, or Maverick uh, Hanley and Aberdeen, if that's where he goes, and have a good backup catcher who gives you a little bit of power. Yeah. yeah I'm, oh, go ahead. Nick. Go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, we know Mike Elias loves versatility, and here's a guy that can play multiple positions. What do you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, catcher, that's definitely a position where you want to have as many options as possible. It's a defensively, physically demanding position, and not a lot of offense usually comes out of it. Not, uh, you know, best prospect in baseball withstanding in Adley Rutschman. And yeah, I think we also don't have that many first base prospects so at least in the upper minors so he could replace jc ascara in my uh double a projection at first base and also be a backup slash third catcher so yeah i think that's another interesting guy um glad we took him yeah the versatility is key 
Uh, he's thrown out 38% of base runners in his minor league career, uh, hit nine home runs in only 48 games with the Lexington Legends back in 2019. So like you said, good pop. I, I posted a video. It's like back-to-back-to-back home runs there. Not from the same game, but like the same week pretty much. Um, pretty good power. Uh, I think he's been an above-average hitter his entire minor league career, which is a small sample size. It's only 120 games. But 120 games, he's got 17 home runs, 27 doubles, and even five triples. Uh, so good numbers all around. And actually, we got a message. I'm going to give a shout-out here to at uh, AustinCS7 on Twitter. Uh, he saw our tweet, and apparently he's roommates with Chris Hudgens. And I don't think I mentioned this to you guys before he came on or you get, if you guys saw this, but apparently Chris sent, Chris sent us a message uh, through Austin saying, hey, Bob, Nick, and Zach, first of all, so appreciative of the Royals giving me the opportunity to play the game I love. I'm very excited and looking forward to what I can do for the Baltimore Orioles organization. I'm looking forward to giving my all every day and helping contribute to this organization. So shout out to Austin. Big shout out to Chris. Uh, you got new fans with us? Yeah, man, that's <laughs> awesome. Glad to hear that. Yeah. I think it's the first time we've had a player contact us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's one more pick to note, and Nick um, also dug up a video of him, and that's Ricky Ramirez, who last pitched uh, in the twin system in 2019. Uh, pitched at three levels, topping out at high A Fort Myers, where he only threw 12 innings. But uh, good numbers across the board. In particular, 42 and two-thirds innings pitched, 50 strikeouts. Um, seeing the video, Nick, what was your impression of him? I mean, it seemed like he's got a little Rio Ruiz flow with the hair going on as well, so that could be pretty cool. Um, now, I mean, there's not a whole lot of information about him being he's a 24-year-old reliever in the lower minors, but it, he looked pretty poised out there in the mound. I, I like the fastball. A um, little bit of the curveball I think he threw in that video I put up. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I liked what I saw. I watched a couple innings of his. Um, and I saw a video, I think it was Emily Walden. So shout out to Emily Walden, who does fantastic work. Uh, she had some videos up from a couple of years ago. They're a little bit dated, uh, but they showed how Ramirez can top 95. But that was about a year and a half ago, I think. So I don't know anything recent. Hard to find information on him. But again, just minor league depth. So he's there. Probably a guy you stick in, probably Bowie's bullpen, maybe even Norfolk's bullpen, but we'll see. Yeah, I saw... Um... Someone on Twins Twitter was like upset because I think they lost five guys in the Rule Five, and he was one of the ones that the guy was saying that they're going to miss. So clearly, the Twins are doing pretty well with their minor league system, but uh, he's definitely not a nobody. I like the high strikeouts and almost no home runs allowed in 2019. That's pretty interesting. I don't know, like he's had a 3.8 ERA in 2019 and a 4.4 or something in his minor league career, so I'm not exactly sure what's missing there, but the ingredients look good if he, if we can get the most out of him. Still only 24, so, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah, so certainly an interesting day for the Orioles in the Rule 5 draft. Just a quick recap. Um, they pick up two pitchers in the major league phase of the Rule 5 draft and then three players in the minor league phase. As Nick mentioned, the minor league phase rules are different, so you're not drafting these guys and hoping that they stick on the major league roster all year. They're pretty much just in the organization now. You can assign them in the minor leagues like you would with any other player. I would suspect that these are mostly double-A AA or A-ball guys, but still going to be names to follow going into 2021. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about some stories that went on BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com this week. Nick and I both had new pieces, and I'm going to start with Nick's stories. 
which is the four can't miss prospects in 2021. Um, so Nick, just tell us a little bit about the list you put together. Yeah, this wasn't like a top prospect list at all. This was just kind of me thinking, first of all, what do I write about with the Baltimore Orioles? Because I don't know right now. But um, this was just kind of my own personal list of the top four guys. And I did throw a, a deep, deep sleeper name in there. But the four guys that I'm most excited to see when we get to go back to the ballparks, hopefully next season, uh, when minor league baseball returns. I had Grayson Rodriguez at the top. Like I mentioned in the article, I usually try to stay away from these top prospects when I write pieces like this because that's obvious. But I think my reasoning there was just if we see Grayson Rodriguez, you know, maybe double A, maybe at some point, uh, maybe starting out the year this year. Um, if we see him in the upper minors and have success, I think the Orioles fans can start to like loosen up a little bit when we watch pitching prospects uh, and realize that things are going in the right direction down there. Uh, this is a guy that we talk about being an elite prospect. And you get little tidbits here and there about uh, that he's probably even more exciting than what we think he is uh, so far. So he's at the top of my list. I had Jordan Westberg on there. Uh, you see John Mioli gave him a lot of high grades when he helped over at Baseball America put together their new top prospect list. Uh, maybe it's just Ben McDonald always talking about Jordan Westberg. Also, that got me excited about him. But definitely excited to see about him. Does he have the power? And can he become a second baseman for the Orioles? Uh, Kyle Stowers also put on that list uh, just because I mentioned him in the last episode. I think you're going to see another outfielder or two jump up over the next year or two, uh, create a big, good problem for the Orioles. We'll see if it's it's him. And then also Gunnar Henderson, just because he I think he's the prospect darling of 2021. Uh, a lot of good reports there. And I think, you know, I mentioned at the very end, you know, do the Orioles and Gunnar Henderson have a top 100 prospect with plus power from the left side, a plus glove? and a future all-star. And based on the reports, I think we're trending in that direction. So that's good to see. But Yeah, enjoy the article. Uh, Kyle Stowers was the only one to have me scratch my head a little bit, but, you know, we'll see. One of these outfielders has to break out, right? So we'll see what happens. Might catch race today. Yeah, so that's actually you, uh, Nick, you mentioned Grayson Rodriguez, and Bob, you have him uh, projected for double A on your roster, correct? Yeah, I do. Just like Nick said, the reports out of this summer were pretty incredible. So I think he might just skip high A entirely. I mean, Elias is pretty conservative, so that might not be the case. But if he does start at high A, I don't think it's going to be long before he is in double A. But I think that uh, he's one of these guys that is defies what Elias might usually do on a with a typical prospect. Yeah, and I, I think that if he's out there pitching next year and he puts together a productive year, and I, like Bob said, I think even if he does start back at high A, we see him at double A at some point um, in the year. And I think if he's someone that goes out and has another big year like he did in 2019, uh, Orioles fans might start feeling a little bit better about not just how the development of pitching is going in the farm system now compared to what we've seen in the past, but this rebuilding process as a whole. Um, so I'm going to, Nick, I want to ask you about Jordan Westberg because I wrote about him as well in my piece and, um, I'm going to get into that in a minute, but defensively, where do you think he's going to end up? Because there's a lot of questions already about whether or not he can stick at shortstop, even though he played the position really well in college, but there's concerns because of his size that he moves off the position. Yeah. And I haven't watched a whole lot of him. So, you know, I, 
really just going off a lot of the scouting reports and, and what Oros beat writers say, but I think just going off of what other prospects are in the system, I think Jordan Westberg is a guy who, if he does tap into that power, that seems to be the big question mark. He moves over to second base just because it seems like Gunnar Henderson, who there's also a lot of talk about, does he fill out that frame? He's also a very young kid. And does he move over to third base? But I think we're seeing more and more of that. No, that may not be the case. He's going to be a big but really athletic shortstop. And so maybe he sticks around there. Um, and so I think just for that reason alone, I would see Jordan Westbrook moving over to second base. But we'd, we'd have to see what he looks like on the field when minor league baseball finally returns. Yeah, if you read the quotes, uh, he'll be the uh, be able to be one of the best shortstops in the league with by tomorrow. But you can never really go by these uh, rosy looks for, that you, they give people. Um, I just think with the abundance of shortstops that we've put into the system and so many that can play defense at a high rate, I think the likelihood with his size and power potential is that he will move to either second or third, but he, he could, you know, he might be able to stick if these reports are to be believed. Yeah, when I, when I was writing him up, I kind of pictured like if he does move to second base and he taps into that power, he might be Jonathan Scope with a better glove and more speed, which is a really good player. Yeah, even if he, you know, even if he's only his on base percentage like kind of hovers between. 330 and 340 most years, or maybe even gets a little bit above that, and he strikes out a lot, but if he's got power, he's got speed, and he's got a good glove, and an arm that's, you know, well beyond suited for second base, that's a really good player. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, so I, on the on BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com this week, started part one of a two-part series that has estimated times of arrival for Orioles prospects. Um, I strategically went with position players first, um, kind of hedging for the possibility that Zach Pop was going to get taken in the Rule 5 draft, because he would have been in the story had I written it first. Uh, but in putting this together, you're gonna, if you go on and you read the story, you're going to notice that I think 2023 is going to be a big year. And the reason for that is that, that seems like realistic timetables for Jordan Westberg, uh, Heston Kerstad, Depending on what we see from the bat, Anthony Servideo, another 2020 draft pick. And this is a, one that I admittedly struggled with when I was putting the story together, was Gunnar Henderson. Just because he is so young, and we still only have 29 games of professional experience to go off of. But I went aggressive and I went mid-2023 on the timetable. So what are your thoughts? Is that going to stick that 2023 turns out to be a big year, or do you think there's a possibility that one or two of these guys beat that timetable. Uh, with Henderson, that's a tough one. I want to say that I would agree with late 2023 just because, you know, like we mentioned before, all these reports coming out of camp, how he did really struggle in the beginning, apparently against these better pitchers. Uh, but then he seemed to really catch on pretty quickly, uh, where even he had Brandon Hyde impressed about what he could do at the end of camp. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's a good sign. He seems like a, a definitely an advanced kid, like a high baseball IQ kid who's going to catch on pretty quickly. But um, yeah, I think 2023 is would be a pretty solid year in putting the Orioles. Looking at 2024 though as the year to like print the playoff tickets, in my opinion. I think 2023 though, you're looking at right on the verge of being a playoff team. And you start to see this infusion of all these rookies like the Kerstads and Westbergs. Uh, and maybe, hopefully, uh, this 
can go off in a totally different direction here. We won't, but you know, maybe next year uh, the Orioles go after one of those top shortstops in the free agent class. And so now 2023, that shortstop is still in his prime and you're starting to supplement uh, the pitching staff that should be in place. And guys like Yusniel Diaz and Austin Hayes and Ryan Mountcastle are entering their prime. And then you get to infuse it with the Heston Kerstad and Gunnar Henderson in 2023. I think after reading this, like I'm getting excited for 2024, even though I know a lot of Orioles fans probably don't agree to that. But Yeah, I don't know. It's... I think what you, what most of your predictions are pretty much middle of the road, like the right predictions. Some of these guys, they might beat the doors down and get here a year sooner or half a year sooner, and some might fall off the face of the earth. But Gunnar Henderson especially, was that is a tough choice because we everything we heard this year seems like he's really took a step up, but at the same time, he's still extremely young and hasn't played above short season ball. So that's tough. If he can get here before your prediction, then... Things are looking really good. Yeah, that's going to be a real testament to the the farm system. If something happens where you see Henderson on opening day 2023, or maybe even September 2022, you know something's going really well uh, in the Orioles' farm system. I did put two names in there that are more short-term possibilities, and that's Taryn Vavra and Tyler Nevin, both acquired in the Michael Givens trade. Nevin has a lot of players in front of him because he is that first base DH outfield type, but I still predict, predicted that he will appear in Baltimore this year, mid to late 2021. And I went ahead and I threw in Taron Vavard as well, even though he's not on the 40-man roster. Uh, one point I made in the story is that he's actually Rule 5 eligible after the 2021 season. So the Orioles could just cut to the you know, move that they're going to make in a few months anyhow and maybe bring him up. Uh, do you, do either one of you see them in the major league next year? Yeah, I like that. I would say with Taron Vavra, the Rule Five thing could play a role, but I think I also said the same about like Ryan McKenna and stuff, and we didn't see that. Uh, but I, I think the Orioles are going to cycle through a lot of middle infielders, and if it's it's bad, which I think a lot of fans are probably anticipating. Then you could, and if Vavra catches on and he's hot, I think you definitely see him. They go ahead and make that decision to move him up. But with Tyler Nevin, I definitely think he comes in mid 2021 because I think I said it last episode. I'm going to stick with this prediction that DJ Stewart flames out and Tyler Nevin takes his spot on the roster probably within the first two, three months of the season. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think Nevin, he's a guy that he'll be waiting at AAA in the moment there's an injury of any sort or you know, someone that's not performing and you need someone that can play first base DH, maybe left field in a pinch, then he's a guy you're going to go right to to bring him up, see what he's got, because he's, what is he, 24, 25? So it's not like he's got much more time to cook down there. Uh, Vavra is a guy I'm high on. I think he will be the starting second baseman by the end of next year, so I definitely agree with you there. That would be exciting. Bannon and Vavra starting at second and third base. Yeah, I could see it. And the versatility, again, you wrote that he can play shortstop in center field as well, so we know that doesn't hurt him. Yeah, that, certain, that certainly should help him. Uh, two other names that I mentioned. Kobe Mayo, I went very, very long view there and went with 2025. But as I said, if he hits, um, he could beat that. And then uh, Adam Hall, who I feel like we've kind of forgotten about in the last few months because the Orioles have brought in so much middle infield depth. I went mid to late 2022 there, provided that he hits. Um, 
at the higher levels of the minor leagues, which I know is a big question mark with him. Uh, Bob, you had Hall at Bowie, correct, for 2021? Yeah, correct. Is he a guy that you're really going to be following next year to see what the bat looks like? Yeah, I mean, if he can continue the success that he had in Delmarva in Bowie, I mean, seems like a big jump, but we just forget that losing 2020 just throws things in such a wrench into things, I should say. But, uh, yeah, if he can perform the way he was doing in Delmarva and Bowie this year, then I think 2022, he's, you know, a good couple months in AAA away from making it up to the majors. Yeah, I don't want to wait till 2025 for Kobe Mayo. I, 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 know, I, know. I want to watch him now. Um, he, uh, I'm excited to watch him for sure. Uh, and actually, you know, Adam Hall, I hope he does hit. I love watching Adam Hall play personally. Uh, I love the speed uh, especially. But actually, to, to go down a little further in the piece there, a name that when I first read it, I was like, I for, honestly forgot he was still in the system. Uh, Ryan McKenna. Like, there's so many guys in that outfield. We have kind of forgotten about the Adam Halls, uh, which is, you know, I hate to say this, a good thing. But again, that's just because there is so much middle infield depth and there are so many more you know, good quality prospects that we're talking about. But that's the same with Ryan McKenna. This is a guy who I think a lot of people were looking at, like, if he does, if he's not the starting center fielder for the Orioles this year or starting opening day 2021, then this is a major failure. And now we're like, hey, if it comes up, cool. If not, eh, oh, well, we got, you know, Yusniel Diaz and Heston Kerstad and, you know, all these 2020 draft picks coming up. So I, I, it's fun. It's fun to watch this and think about that. I, I feel bad for those guys saying that. But yeah, as a fan of this team and wanting to Orioles to put together a, a quality product on the field, I think it's a great problem. And you yeah. forgot to mention Judd Fabian, who will be our yeah. uh, starting center fielder in 2022. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there is certainly the Orioles have added a lot to their outfield depth. There's potential to add more with McKenna, and I'm glad Nick actually brought him up. Um, with McKenna, I basically outlined what I think the problem is with him is that we haven't seen the success that he showed at the plate in uh, what was 2017 was when he had the big year, or 2018. Uh, we haven't really seen him replicate that yet. But uh, if nothing else, the speed and the defense are two things that I know the Orioles really like. So if there is a need for even a guy just to come in as need a defensive replacement or someone you just want a little bit of speed on the team, I think McKenna could get there at some point in 2021. So that's over at BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com along with Nick's story. Uh, check back in next week for my look at pitchers and when they could reach the major leagues. Um, I'll just tell you up front that that's going to be much, much heavier on 2021 prospects than the hitters piece was. But there will be a few in there that are a little uh, further away. Uh, in addition, you can always visit BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for coverage on the Ravens, Terps. There's been some really good general MLB off-season coverage going on there as well. So check that out and hop on the message board and join in the discussion with other fans and the writers at BSL. And continue to follow us on Twitter, at BSL on the Verge. Uh, before we sign off for the night, I'll start with Nick. Any final thoughts? Uh, I would just say, yeah, I think this was episode 25 for us. So a nice even number. Uh, probably our last episode of the year, unless something major happens. Um, who knows? But I think that was pretty awesome kind of first year of doing this. Good 25 episodes. We got an awesome following. A lot more Twitter followers recently, and I love to see that. Uh, we love interacting with everybody. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Um, you know, I, 
thank you guys. Thank everybody for listening and doing this. We enjoy this a whole lot. We're looking forward to keeping this rolling when we actually have minor league baseball to talk about. 100%. You know, this is just the beginning. Hopefully we can build on this next year and just get better and better and and cover more and more things. It's been a lot of fun. But the only thing I'll add is that uh, <laughs> treat your mail carriers well this month. Uh, Christmas season is here and we're tired. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Treat your mail, mail, mail carrier as well. And um, if this is our last show of 2020, um, thank you to the listeners. You have been awesome. Thank you to Nick and Bob. Uh, I was really happy with the way that we were able to pivot uh, and continue this show, even in the absence of a minor league season. Uh, also, a special shout-out to our producer, Josh, and Chris Stoner, the owner of BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com, who uh, encouraged us to keep this going, um, even without minor league baseball going on in 2020. So if this is our last episode of 2020, thank you so much for listening and supporting us. But you're not going to have to wait very long in the 2021 before we're back. And when we uh, get into the new year, we're going to hit the ground running with a lot of coverage on uh, the international signing period. We're going to be updating our top 30 prospect list. And then once we get into spring training, whenever that does get started, we're going to be gearing up for the Orioles season. So 2021 is going to be, going to be a big year for us uh, here at On the Birds. But uh, for this episode, thank you for listening. For Bob and Nick, this has been Zach Svedden, and you've been listening to On the Birds.